Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm your host, Russ Chevalier. This episode is brought to you by a series of recurring questions, and that means questions that keep coming up. You can help us grow our audience by telling your friends and peers about this podcast, by posting about it on social media, and by giving us a positive review on iTunes. I really appreciate that you invest the time to listen, and thank you for your support. Welcome to episode number 92. In this episode, I want to help you escape from BS land. Yes, it's a terrible place. And the reason it's a terrible place is created partly because the enormous amount of misinformation around sensor size, crop factor, and megapixels. Okay, sensor size, crop factor, megapixels. These are all quantifiable entities. They're real. But there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misinformation, and a ton of outright full-on BS out there about them. And questions continue to reemerge from folks who fear that they've made a purchase mistake or they're sitting in fear of making a purchase mistake. I want to start with sensor size. The size of the sensor in a camera is a physical thing. It's a measurement. And there are a number of standards for sensor size, and let's be clear up front, no one sensor size is always better than any other one. Your choice is going to depend a great deal on how you will use your camera and what outcomes you require. How you use and your outcomes are called use cases, and every one of us has different use cases. I promise you that if you take the time to identify and document your use cases, your purchase decisions are going to be better because you'll be buying to fit your requirements. Back to sensors. What we know is that a full frame sensor is physically larger than a so-called crop sensor. And we also know that a sensor in a smartphone is the smallest one that we're going to find by far. The larger the sensor, the shallower the depth of field will be at any given aperture and subject distance. A tiny sensor natively has lots of depth of field because it has only one or maybe two relatively small apertures. And to cover that sensor, they need a very tiny image circle. The image circle is literally the image that's created by the lens converging light on the focal area. And this is why phones and the old style point and shoots are so fast to focus because they don't have to work hard at it. They depend on having lots of depth of field. But if you want beautiful background blurs and bokeh, you're going to look for a larger sensor and a larger aperture. Now, you can do this in post-processing. There's all kinds of tools out there. And in fact, in phones, we're starting to see computational photography to help us get that. But let's be honest with each other. It never looks as good as the real thing. When we look at camera sensor sizes, the common sizes that we'll encounter in order of decreasing area are full frame, APS-C in the Nikon, Fujifilm, Sony range, APS-C for Canon, micro four thirds, and then way down the list will be the smartphone. Products will change but sensor physical size doesn't. 
there have been sensors such as the APS-H size sensor that have fallen out of favor and we don't see them in current models. An important consideration that a lot of folks don't necessarily think about is the native aspect ratio. Most of the sensors that we're going to encounter, full frame and APS-C in both the Canon and everybody else variants, have an aspect ratio of three to two. So three units on the long side, two units on the short side. This gives us a standard print, you know, like a four by six. But micro four thirds and most phone sensors use a different aspect ratio. They're typically four to three. So a three by four print or six by eight would kind of be their normal aspect ratio. In fairness, this really only matters when you're printing and you're having to buy frames because getting the proper ratio prints and frames is still a big pain, even though the commonly used five to four ratio for prints and frames hasn't been dominant for over 70 years. If it sounds incredibly stupid to you that you cannot easily get frames and prints in your normal proper aspect ratios and that you have to compromise for something that's been out of date for over half a century. You're right. It's stupid. I haven't touched on medium format sensors. They're larger again than what we talk about in the context of a DSLR or mirrorless full frame system. We will find these size sensors in cameras from folks like Hasselblad, Fujifilm and phase one. When it comes to sensors, the question comes, is a bigger sensor better? Well, it's going to depend a lot on your use cases, and those use cases are going to be driven a lot by what you shoot and what your outcomes are. Let's move on to crop factor. Phone users don't care about crop factor, and neither do micro four-thirds shooters, not because they're making bad photographs, but because their lens focal lengths are measured accurately according to the actual focal distance with an appropriately sized image circle. So it's not just focus distance, it's also the size of the image circle. And this is where it gets dumb. If you're shooting APS-H or any of the APS-C variants, the topic gets confusing as heck. And the reason is back when digital first came out, it was extremely expensive to make consistent full frame sensors. But the makers of cameras did not want to have to tell owners that the lenses were different. So they measured all lenses as if they produced a full frame image circle. Now, the fact is the sensors were way smaller than that. And since the sensor occupied much less space in the image circle produced by those early lenses, the final image looked like it had been cropped in. Hence the term crop. And in fact, it was cropped in. If you had an APS-H sensor at the time, the crop-in factor was 1.3. If you had a camera with an APS-C sensor, the crop-in factor was 1.5, and it still is, unless you have a Canon APS-C sensor, in which case the crop-in factor is 1.6. This naming practice, which persists today, still brings all manner of confusion because lenses for these bodies, even though the sensor is smaller, still specify the focal length as if the lenses were capable of creating a full frame image circle, and lots of them can't. Canon's EFS lenses, Nikon's DX lenses, and Sony's E lenses use full frame focal length nomenclature, 
even when their image circles will not cover a full-frame sensor. Canon even makes the mounting of EFS lenses impossible on their full-frame cameras. Sony and Nikon make it possible, but they digitally crop out in software in the CPU the areas that the lens cannot cover on the larger image sensor. And that's what happens when you mount a DX lens to an FX sensor. Cropping occurs in the body. You're able to use the lens, but you're not getting the focal length that you think you're getting. And this crop factor stuff leads to lots of misinformation. A very common one is to call the 50 mil lens a portrait lens. Listen, guys, no professional portrait photographer will use a 50 mil for anything closer than a half body shot on a full frame because of the perspective exaggeration that gets created. Yet, for marketing reasons, this lens is laughingly called the portrait lens. The rationale for that is if you're shooting on a Nikon or Sony, the apparent focal length will be about 75 millimeters, as if that lens were mounted on a full frame and it were 75 millimeters in focal length. If you're mounting on a Canon, it's going to have this apparent focal length of 80 millimeters. It's still a 50 mil lens. We're just seeing less of the image circle because of the smaller sensor, so it looks like it's longer. In the long term, neither of these options are particularly portrait focal lengths either. Recent surveys and studies show that current portrait photographers are shooting mostly with a 70 to 200 and typically above 150 millimeters. So be cautious when you read some of this advertising material. Think about your use case. And remember that the marketing may only apply to a particular level of crop. Now, some folks get very, very excited about being able to apply crop factor multiplication. But I'm going to suggest to you that that's really a waste of time. Unless you're shooting two different bodies, perhaps one full frame and one something else, and you require the same field of view from both cameras. All this full frame equivalency chatter is really just a waste. Put the lens on the camera and shoot. Do you like the result? Perfect. Get it and move on. You don't like what it looks like? Then don't buy it. Try something else. Try something longer. Try something shorter. I'll just give you a few examples. If I use a 50 mil on a full frame camera, and as we know, this is measured as if it's a full frame camera, even if you're using it not on one, the field of view in degrees diagonally is 46.8. Okay, that's a look. But when I put this same lens on an APS-C from, say, Sony or Nikon, my field of view drops down to 31.56 degrees. It looks like we've zoomed in. But if I wanted the 50 mil look, that 46.8 degrees, it's the wrong lens. Similarly, if I put that 50 mil measured for full frame on an APS-C censored Canon, its diagonal field of view is now 30.5 degrees. Further cropped in, making the lens look more telephoto when it's not. And at the same time, if my goal was to deliver the look and feel of that 50 millimeter on full frame, I've got the wrong lens. Now, one of the benefits that the Micro Four Thirds folks have is that when you want a field of view, there's a focal length specifically for that. 
So for example, if I've got a micro four thirds camera and I want a 46.9 diagonal field of view, I'm just going to pick up the 25 millimeter lens and that's going to deliver exactly what I'm looking for. And this is why I say the apparent focal length doesn't matter. The only thing that matters really is the field of view, but nobody talks about it. It's the only thing that you see. So when you look at lenses, base your purchase decision based on what you see in the viewfinder or on the LCD, not on the millimeter factor that is possibly imprinted on the lens. So should you buy based on crop factor? No. Buy based on your use cases. And your use cases are going to tell you what sensor size and crop relationship is going to be best for you. When you start to hear jargon like crop factor and full frame equivalency as part of the pitch, it's time to turn the music up and drown out that noise. Which sensor size is best? Which crop factor is best? Only you can tell, and it depends entirely on your use cases. Possibly the greatest home of BS in photography is this whole megapixel hoopla. Based on the assertion that more is always better, makers have gone through the megapixel wars on multiple occasions. Now let's be completely clear. If your use cases result solely or even predominantly in images being posted on Facebook or Instagram or your blog, anything with more than 10 megapixels is overkill. What do I mean by overkill? Well, the fact is, you won't see it. The screen resolution is so low and web compression is so high, no one's ever going to know that you spent more money on a larger megapixel count sensor. And if anyone tells you that they can see the difference on the computer screen, or even better, on their smartphone, just nod and smile, because these folks need medication. They're highly diluted. What is a megapixel anyway? It's a count. It's a number. It's a count of 1 million pixels. So if I have a sensor that says it has 24 megapixels, that means it has 24 million pixels or 24 million photo sites. If I buy a camera with a 42 megapixel sensor, there are going to be 42 million photo sites. More does sound better, doesn't it? Isn't it? It depends. And it depends entirely on your use cases. The reason for this is that the sensor size is fixed. It doesn't matter what sensor size you choose. Once you're in that family, that sensor doesn't change in size. So in order to get more pixels or photo sites on a sensor, each one of those entities has to be smaller in overall surface area. Make it simple. If I have a 24 megapixel camera with 24 million photo sites, they still have to cover that same area, let's say it's full frame, of 36 millimeters by 24 millimeters. If I buy a camera with a 42 megapixel sensor that is full frame, now I've got 42 million photo sites that still have to fit into that same 36 millimeter by 24 millimeter surface area. Thus, each pixel, as the megapixel count goes up, has to be physically smaller in surface area. Make sense? Now, to make a pixel sensitive to light, we need to give it power. To make a smaller pixel equivalently light sensitive to a larger one 
in the same kind of luminosity scenario means we've got to feed that smaller pixel or photosite more power. What this means to us as photographers is that a lower count megapixel sensor will have a higher signal to noise ratio internally than a higher megapixel sensor. We're simply having to push more power to smaller photo sites on a high megapixel sensor. For all of us, this means that the lower megapixel sensor will have less digital noise than a higher megapixel sensor at the same level of light and exposure when they are generationally equivalent. And by that, I mean both cameras have come out within, say, 12 to 18 months of each other. This measurement of signal to noise is consistently true. Doesn't matter who the maker is, doesn't matter who the brand of camera is. Higher megapixels generate noise sooner than low megapixel sensors. It's just a fact. In fairness, makers work very, very hard to improve their low light performance, and some of them even stop chasing megapixels to do so. I'll give you an example. If you've noted that both Canon's and Nikon's Pro bodies, the 1DX Mark II and the D5 respectively, They've got relatively small megapixel counts, relatively small in today's terminology. Why? It's because these cameras are built to outperform other cameras in low light. They're designed for pros who may not have the ability to control the lighting all the time. People who may have to work in really crap light a lot. That means that they're going to be working at higher ISOs. So if we had huge, huge megapixel counts, the noise would be well, it's going to be less than acceptable. High megapixels, low noise are counter to each other. You can't have both. Pick one. And it's easy to do because your use case is going to determine your right path. Makers also work really hard to put extensive processing capabilities in the cameras themselves. When we see a new camera has come out, one of the specifications that's always touted is that there is a newer, faster, more powerful CPU. And these are super powerful computers. We already know that all JPEGs are very heavily processed and they're also highly compressed. But what many people don't know, unless they've been listening to this podcast, is that all RAW files are also processed, some very extensively, during that creation process to give the best sharpness and lowest noise before you even get the RAW file written to the card. All RAWs are not created equally and no raw is actually truly raw. They're all processed to some extent. And this is why raws from different makers will need different raw decoders. They're not all the same. And in fact, raws from the same manufacturer, but different cameras are not all the same. Consequently, we have to take this into account when we think about how many megapixels we need and how we're going to shoot and what my use cases are. If I'm only shooting JPEG, well, I'm already dealing with a lot of heavy processing and high compression. Maybe the megapixel count is less important. One area where megapixels matter enormously is in what we call the native print size. To get the native print size, we divide the pixel dimensions using a common numeric indicator of 300 pixels per inch. It's a pretty standard utilization for printing. I understand that different printer manufacturers may specify different numbers, but if you use 300 standardized across your analysis, you're going to get like numbers, and that matters a lot. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to divide that pixel dimension by 300 pixels per inch to determine the native print size. Therefore, the math is simple. A high megapixel sensor is going to deliver a larger native print size. And that means if you're making big prints, you're going to need less math and less post-processing to make those much larger prints. So let me take you through five pretty common body sizes to give you a sense of what we're talking about. Uh, Canon's 5D Mark IV is pretty popular. It's a 30.4 megapixel sensor with a pixel layout of 6,720 by 4480. Average raw file size, somewhere around 38 megabytes. Its native print size is 22.4 on the long side by 14.9 inches on the short side. That means anything up to, call it 22.5 by 15, is within the native print size. That's pretty awesome. Now, if you move to, say, a Nikon D850 designed for large prints with a megapixel count of 45.7 and a lot more pixels, 8256 by 5504, resulting in an average raw file size somewhere around 55 megabytes, our native print size changes. It goes up to 27.5 inches by 18.3 inches natively before any math needs to be applied. So this helps us to understand that if we're going to be making larger prints, a higher megapixel count might be the right thing to do. Now let's go down and we'll take a look at Olympus's OMD EM1 Mark II. This is a 20.4 megapixel sensor. 5184 by 3888. Its average raw file size is about 24 megabytes. And still, its native print size is 17.3 by 13 inches. That's still really, really good. Then we can look at any of the cameras in the, let's call it 24 megapixel range, like Nikon's D5600, like the Fuji films, like the Rebel T7i, somewhere around 24 megapixels, typically going to be 6,000 by 4,000 pixels, about 27 megabytes. And that's going to give our native print size of 20 inches by about 13.3 inches. That's really, really great. So what we should get from this is that even if we choose a camera with a relatively low megapixel count, our native print size is still going to be really good considering that, well, not everybody prints large. And let's think about that for a sec. What if you don't print? What if you don't, with any kind of consistency, make prints larger than your native print size? Well, then maybe you're spending money on something that you get no real benefit from at the cost of increased noise, right? Because we know more megapixels are going to be noisier at higher ISOs. How do you choose? Well, only you and your use cases can decide. Once again, it depends on you. As we wrap up this episode, I got to admit, I get really frustrated by the amount of mental clutter that gets caused by these conversations about sensor size, crop factor, and megapixels, because they all get in the way of doing the actual work of image making. You're photographers. You're not sitting in your parents' basement being a troll on the internet. Your goal is to go make amazing images. And worrying about this stuff is mostly pointless once you define your own use cases and make your decisions based upon them. It's possible. In fact, it's conceivable. It might even be probable 
that no one camera body is going to surface all your use cases. And if this is true, well, then welcome to the club of photographers using more than one camera body. When you get past all the internet noise and define your use cases, you can choose a camera or cameras based on the fit in your hands, the weight, the ease of use, and the intuitiveness of operation. These things are going to impact you every single photographing day and in the long term are going to be of much greater importance so long as you're honestly addressing your use cases. So don't get caught up in specifications. Think about what you need, what you want to deliver, and choose accordingly. If you've got an idea for an article, or a tutorial, or a video, please let me know. If you have a question that's photo or video related that has nothing to do with this article, let me know. Send me an email directly at ross at thephotovideoguy.ca or you could simply post in the comments for this episode. If you find this podcast or the articles or the videos of value, please consider clicking the donation tab in the sidebar of the website and buy me a coffee. Your donation goes to help me keep things going. Don't forget to send in your questions on any photo or video topic. I try to respond within a day and who knows you may become the instigator of a new article video or podcast. I'm Ross Chevalier. Thanks for reading, watching, and listening. And until next time, peace.